0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Good morning. The scripture reading from today is Micah chapter 2, verses 1-13. through 13. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taut song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said... O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest. Because of uncleanness that destroys you with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens up the breach... Goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. The king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Well, said to the early service. It it feels a little bit contradictory to have somebody so kind as Lisa to read such a hammer dropping uh, passage of scripture. But but here we are. The gospel is filled with contrast, and uh, that's an illustration of that. So. So our, uh, our sermon title this morning is Heart of Darkness, and uh, like I said last week, there are a few um, chapters that we have to pass through in order to get to, uh, you know, the sky opening up in chapters four and five, especially of, of the mercy and grace of Christ that comes in to resolve and redeem and restore the hard stuff, um, but we're... We're in another week uh, right now with the hard stuff. Uh, happy President's Day weekend, by the way. I uh, hope it's been a good long weekend for you. Uh, good to be with you. And I will start with, um, with an anecdote of a church that got a new pastor. New pastor coming into a church. And his very first Sunday, he decided he was going to come in strong and preach against the sin of lust. And some of the leaders in the church, the lay leaders in the church, came up to him afterwards and said, You know, Pastor, you probably need to stay away from that subject because there's a popular men's club in town, and a lot of members in our church are patrons there, and may, they may feel uncomfortable with you preaching stuff like this. And so the next Sunday he said, Okay, I'm going to take a different direction, and I'm going to preach against the sin of drunkenness. And the same people came to him, Uh, most of them on the board of elders and said, you know, uh, there's a popular distillery in town. The owner is actually a member of our church and of our elder board, and uh, we're pretty sure that he's going to be offended uh, by this sermon. So you got to be careful about drunkenness as well. And then on Sunday, number three, he said, okay, I'll go a different direction. He preached against the sin of greed, and the same people came to him and said, you know, there's a there's a popular casino right down the road, and a lot of our members make their living uh, at the casino, and, um, and you just got to be careful about that. And, and the pastor said, well, it looks like I'm 0 for 3, uh, so let's let you decide what I preach about next week. What will it be? And they, and they said, well, you know, uh, maybe cannibalism, um, because, you know, we, we don't think we have any of those here. So next week, the first two verses, in chapter 3, Micah uses a cannibalism metaphor. And he talks about how the the power brokers in Israel, who are also very corrupt, cannibalize their people by taking their lands and properties, uh, by stealing things like life and humanity and dignity from them as well. And it turns out then, we're all cannibals too on some level. The haves stripping away stuff from the have-nots because they can. And so here in chapter 2, before we get to that next week, we've got a portrait of two kinds of preachers. And the first kind of preacher is the kind of preacher who will affirm moral contamination among those who claim to be the people of God for money. You've actually got people hiring false prophets to say things that contradict what God says, because what God says make them uncomfortable, makes them uncomfortable. And so there's the the certain kind of prophet that affirms moral contamination from financial gain. And then there are prophets like Micah who confronts moral contamination in the land. And so last week talked a little bit about how the only way to get well from physical, emotional, relational, or spiritual disease is to not look away from those things and pretend they don't exist, but to look head-on into them and seek treatment for them. So that's what we're going to do this week, and uh, the three points are the human heart is dark, hearts that are tender toward God welcome the exposure, and then finally, God is severe, but he's also kind. So first, the human heart is dark. I don't know if you caught it as Lisa was reading the scripture, but, but there's, there's not only evil in the land, it's planned, it's premeditated, it's calculated. Verses 1 and 2, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil. They covet and seize fields. They oppress a man and his house. And this includes the most vulnerable people, in the land, who at the time are women and young children, where you know, he says in verse 9 that women and young children are driven out from their houses. Women and young children are made homeless because of greed and theft. And the response to, to, to this prophetic word against this kind of unjust oppressive moral contamination is very disheartening because the response is not repentance and humility. It's a stubborn conscience and walls of self-justification. So the stubborn conscience, we see in verse 6, how the people reject Micah's prophetic correction. And they say, One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. You know, this is a recurring pastoral theme when, when people come into pastor's offices or maybe they're dragged into a counselor's office. There are two particular situations that recur repeatedly. One is that there's been an intervention uh, when somebody has um, made a wreck of their lives and is creating wreckage in other people's lives through an addiction and what's, what's easily discovered is that, you know, what, what the recovery folks say is, is absolutely true about how 95% of the battle is for the addict to admit that he or she is addicted and desires help. That's 95% of the battle. It's hard to get there sometimes. And another situation is when there's been infidelity in a marriage. And oftentimes, these situations never reach the pastor's or the counselor's office until firm, life-changing decisions have already been made. And occasionally, the the couple will will both come in, and, and the one who has been unfaithful and made a decision to to have a relationship with somebody else and to leave the marriage will undoubtedly say this, being with this other person makes me happy and God wants me to be happy. Which which is terribly ironic because the person sitting next to this person is experiencing deep unhappiness specifically because of your pursuit of happiness. And so you're contradicting yourself unless you're saying that God wants you to be happy but doesn't want your spouse to be happy. And the answer from the pastor, and it doesn't usually go well, or the answer from the counselor, it usually doesn't go well. No. God doesn't want you to be happy on these terms. God wants you to be holy and and he he will decimate your happiness if he has to in order to get you on a path of holiness and faithfulness because in the end real lasting abiding sustainable happiness can only happen on God's terms which are trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey The prevailing sin in Israel is the sin of greed. And I remember a conversation that I was having with Tim Keller in New York, in our our New York days when we served at Redeemer. And he started talking about how in over 40 years of pastoral ministry, people have come into his office and confessed sins of almost every kind. Infidelity, infidelity dishonesty, theft, just, you know, the list goes on and on. But he says, in over 40 years of pastoral ministry, I have never had a single person come in and confess the sin of greed. And this is like Wall Street world. And and he's never had anyone confess greed. And he went on to say, greed is one of those Tricky things, because blindness to the condition is intrinsic to the condition. So, closer to home, uh, many of you have been around for a while. You know who Pastor Ronnie Mitchell is. He's an African-American pastor. He's bivocational. I don't believe he takes a salary from his church. If he does, it's a very small salary, uh, his full-time job is to work with the city of Nashville uh, with the housing and, and code, you know, department. And he said, Pastor Scott, I want you to come spend half a day with me in East Nashville if you don't mind. I'd, I'd like to share with you a little bit about how things are for us on the other side of the highway. And so we drive around, and he's showing me all these new, beautiful, gentrified, newly gentrified neighborhoods in East Nashville. And he says, Pastor Scott, there's no doubt, there's no doubt that crime has gone down in these neighborhoods. There's no doubt that we have more and better restaurants. There's no doubt that, that the streets are cleaner and the houses are prettier and all the rest. And developers have come in here and they've said, look at us, we've cleaned up the neighborhood. But let me tell you about what happens on the underbelly of that. What developers will often do is they'll knock on the door of of maybe a fifth or sixth generation family. and, And the house is the only thing that they own. It's the only property that they have. And developers will exploit their ignorance. And offer them 25% of what their house is actually worth. And it will sound to them like a fortune because they've never had wealth. And they will take the deal. And then they will move 45 minutes away and be displaced from their life, from their neighborhood, from their community. And the developer will knock it down and put something else up. Pastor Scott, do you think there's something wrong with... Offering 25% of the home value when you know that the people that you're offering to are going to think it's a fortune, and you also know you're ripping them off because you can. It's close to home. This isn't just ancient Israel. This isn't just Wall Street greed in 2008. This is us. It's us. A stubborn conscience will resist but it's still us. Walls of self-justification is the next thing that happens. We call it confirmation bias. It's when we surround ourselves with voices who will affirm that which troubles our conscience so that our conscience will become quieter and the affirmation will become louder and we will be able to lie to ourselves and say this is not only okay, it's good. And we start to call... Good things evil, and we start to call evil things good. Confirmation bias. One of the common questions that is asked of churches these days in 21st century America is Are you an affirming church? And what that means is Do you embrace the 21st century Western Hemisphere sexual revolution in your church? Are you an affirming church, or are you one of those other churches? Those stick-in-the-mud, fundamentalist, out-of-date, not-in-tune-with-the-times churches. So there are actually websites where Christ Presbyterian Church is listed as a non-affirming, welcoming church, which I suppose means that, that we... We still hold to the historic biblical teaching on sex and marriage, that sex belongs only within marriage, and marriage is only for one man and one woman according to Scripture and the way that God designed it. But we're also welcoming. It means we're not jerks about it, which I suppose is a fair enough description But on these kinds of things, the first chapter of Romans, in addition to chapters like this, should haunt us. There's a section in Romans chapter 1 about the wrath of God. And it says that the wrath of God hangs over people who exchange the truth of God for a lie, who call good evil and who call evil good. The wrath of God is on you. And God doesn't even have to Lift a finger. Just the fact that you're out of line with God is wrath itself. It's something you bring on yourself. And it includes, according to Romans 1, dishonoring our body with erotic experiences that that Scripture does not authorize, but warns against, and warns against repeatedly. And the closing statement of Romans 1 is this. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval, or affirm, to those who practice them. What it's saying here is that whenever we make peace with sin, God will declare war on us. And we don't want that. Trust me, we don't want that. And we say, yeah, finally, somebody's getting up there talking about biblical marriage. Well, let me ask you a question. Those of you who are married, when's the last time you held hands with your spouse? When's the last time you cupped their face in your hands, looked them in the eye, and told them how much you love them and how precious they are to you? When's the last time you said, I'm sorry to them? When's the last time you forgave them with all your heart? When's the last time you cherish them as Christ cherishes and loves the church? When's the last time you submitted to them, husbands and wives, submitting to one another? Ephesians 5, 21, out of reverence for Christ. You think your hands are clean? You think you're better? You think you're superior? You think you're not contaminated? Romans 1 also lists some other things. Coveting, envy... Strife, deceit, gossip, slander, pride. Do you hear yourself in there? I hear myself in there. Verse 11, back to Micah. Those who preach lies. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, he would be the preacher for this people. You won't wind and lies. Knock yourself out. You know, Paul talks to his protege, writes to his protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4, and he says this. This is your charge. Preach the word. In season and out of season, which means when it's convenient and when it's not, when it's popular and when it's not, when it will grow your church and when it will shrink your church, preach the word. For the time is coming, he warns, when people will not endure sound, which is another word for healthy, teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, confirmation bias, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The human heart is dark. And because the human heart is dark, it requires a hammer drop every now and then, a smelling salt to the soul. Secondly, hearts that are tender toward God welcome this kind of exposure. That's part of how you know your heart is where God wants your heart to be, is that you're not ready to storm out of the building just yet. Conviction, those whose hearts are tender to God, conviction is a pathway to grace. Micah comes across as a party pooper. He really does. You might remember last week, I I gave a quote from James Montgomery Boyce, uh, the former senior pastor of 10th Presbyterian in downtown Philadelphia, and, and Boyce wrote this, More people have been won by honey than by thunder. Many who have rejected a Christian's logic have been won by his tears. So, so far, the dominant themes of Micah are death, doom, and destruction. That was last week's sermon. That's kind of this week's sermon. And something really surprising happened uh, starting right after the services and continuing all the way through the the week and even this morning of emails and text messages and conversations where people have said about last week's hammer drop sermon, that's the best you've ever preached. Now that's a lot less about me because I'm the same preacher last week as I was last year. Maybe a little bit worse in some ways. But what that kind of remark and response is an indicator of is a well-formed heart. Ezekiel chapter 3, another prophet of doom. That that God gave this difficult message to deliver to the people of Israel. And Ezekiel chapter 3, Ezekiel describes this encounter that he has with God and God brings him a scroll, and on that scroll are w- words of death, doom, and destruction. And, and, and he says, you know, as a preparation for you to preach these words to the people, I want you to first take this scroll into your mouth. I want you to eat it. Chew it up and swallow it. And Ezekiel said that this scroll with words of death, doom, and destruction written all over it tasted to him like Honey. Honey. You remember Boyce said, you know, more, more people have been won by honey than by thunder. But, but for the well-formed heart, even thunder from God lands as sweet as honey. It's almost impossible to discern the difference for the well-formed heart between thunder and honey if they both come from God. Because everything that comes from God is Honey. You know God has your heart when even his rod and his staff comfort you. That's from Psalm 23. The rod and the staff were instruments of discipline for wayward sheep. When you value holiness more than happiness, when you value pleasing God more than pleasuring yourself, you know your heart has been warmed Toward God. And and the reason why your heart is warm toward God is because you live in the awareness that even when he gives you the hard stuff, it's because his heart is so warmed toward you. Rebecca Manley Pippert wrote this great book. It's an oldie but a goodie. It's called Hope Has Its Reasons. And she, she unpacks this teaching, I think, in a really, you know, helpful way. She says, we tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. We take pride in our tolerance of the excess of others. So what is God's problem? But love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. In short, God hates sin with a holy hatred because God loves people with a holy love. Lastly, God is severe, but he's also kind. There's this curious statement in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, where, where the, the Apostle Paul writes, Consider, I want you to consider the kindness and the severity of God. You know, we've seen a lot of the severity last week. And, So far this morning. but What about his kindness? So there's a hint. There's a little crumb. That God is dropping on the floor. For us to grab and nourish ourselves with. On the way to chapters 4 and 5. Where the, the skies will open up. And it's in verse 13. Where it says their king. Passes on before them. The Lord at their head. It sounds a lot like the triumphal entry. It sounds a lot like Palm Sunday. Maybe that's what. It's referring to. In chapter 5, he'll talk about the child born in Bethlehem, which is, of course, pointing ahead to Jesus. So in C.S. Lewis's uh, masterpiece, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this encounter that happens between Mr. Beaver and Susan. And Mr. Beaver is trying to communicate to Susan about uh, the, the Christ figure who is Aslan. And he says to Susan, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And Susan responds, oh, I would thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Some part of this pastor cohort, this cohort of pastors, about 10 of us, and we were together not long ago having a conversation about a book that was written specifically to outline the common sins that pastors commit. Great book for a group like ours. And and we're, you know, we're kind of accountability to one another. We 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 wanna all do what we do well. We all want our private and public lives to, to have integrity. And so we read stuff like that. And everybody was kind of dancing around the different subjects that were brought up in the book until one of the, one of the guys in the group says, hold on. Time out, everybody. Ten chapters in this book. Am I the only one who saw myself in every single chapter? And then all the heads went down including mine, all the hands went up, including mine, God have mercy on us. What on earth are we doing in this high and holy calling? We are more sheep than we are shepherds. But this is the key. Because it's the ability to say those things in a group. Not just quietly to God or you know, in the quietness of your own heart, which is fine, but in a group, you know, the half brother of Jesus, James, says, confess, confess, your sins one to another. Then you'll be healed. Healing happens in community. This is why, this is why a group of of, 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 of people who are addicted to a substance or or to the drink or the bottle or to porn or, or whatever they're addicted to get well. In recovery groups, better than Christians get well in sanctuaries. There is power. There's a disarming power on the heart of being able to say, look, we're all here for the same reason. We all have need and we all realize that that, that we need power outside of ourselves, the power of community, the power of God. We need power outside of ourselves in order to, to heal from this, in order to mend From this, in order to sober up from this. And Micah says the very same thing. Verse 12 I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. Remember, Jacob has two names given to him Jacob, which is the name that was given by his father at birth, which means liar. And his father pronounced a curse over him before he even got a chance to start living. And he fought, 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 fought to earn the paternal blessing from his father. Never got it. And finally gets in a re- wrestling match with God on the ground. And, and he won't let go. And he says, I won't let go, God, until you bless me. Which is really just a cry of saying, I need a daddy because I've never had one. Will you be it? I will fight you until you become my dad. And the Lord says, okay, but it's going to come with a limp. But you need to understand that your limp is going to be the, your superpower. It's going to be where your strength resides. And you will become the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And from now on you will be Israel. And yet it's referring back here to Israel as Jacob again. As if to say we never quite get past fully the most damaged and sinful and broken parts of us. Then it goes on to say, I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold. Well, sheep are dumb. They're moody. They're wayward. Not a flattering statement. And then it says, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. A noisy multitude of men. So here we have all these different images, all these different metaphors that remind us of something. It took God one day to take Israel out of Egypt. It took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel in a desert space. And this this phrase, noisy multitude, that's actually a pretty terrific description of Israel in the wilderness as God is bit by bit over time excavating Egypt out of their hearts and getting them ready for the land of promise. Repentance is noisy. It's not linear. It's zigzag. It's, it's two steps forward, three steps back, five steps forward, one step back, 20 steps forward, 19 steps back, three steps forward, two steps back, five steps forward. You, you get what I mean? Like Most of the sins that we bring into the equation are besetting, which means it takes them time and it takes messiness over time, to excavate them. For Israel, it was 40 years. In Micah's day, it, it took Micah 16 years of preaching to the people of Israel before he got a single positive response. It took him 25 years before revival happened. The hope lies in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where the Apostle Paul says to individuals and communities... I am confident in this, that the God who began a good work in you, so the work is already underway, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. The work is not finished. We are all unfinished and we are all underway and God has infinite patience for us in the process and he also has infinite resolve to get us home and to ultimately make us like Christ and prepare us for the true land of promise. When it's all said and done, there will be grace. The message is, even for those who have acted like cannibals. That's where God is taking this cannibalistic people to a place of mercy, grace, redemption, renewal, newness of life, adoption, world without end. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we... We thank you that you're full of truth. You're willing to say the hard things even even as a good surgeon is willing to say the hard things. And you're willing to operate even as a good surgeon is willing to operate. And you're willing to walk alongside us all the way to full recovery even as a good surgeon is willing to walk alongside a patient to full recovery. Lord, we thank you for the medicinal quality of the gospel. We thank you for the therapeutic quality of the gospel. It's about justice and forgiveness and sin and repentance, and it is also about healing from the great physician. And we thank you for this table in front of us. It's a table that speaks some wonderful truths, some disorienting truths, and ultimately healing truths that lead to forgiveness and redemption. And so feed us now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.